Good morning, Community Church. Good morning, Alma. Good morning to those of you online. We're going to be celebrating communion at the end of the service, so you start preparing your hearts now. You know that the cups that also have the bread with them are in the seat backs in front of you. And those of you in Alma also prepare and online, uh, please take time to grab some juice and some bread, and uh, we'll get to that point in a little while. I'm a very disciplined guy in most areas. And one of the things I do, uh, it's become kind of a ritual with me when I leave the house, I'm always going phone, glasses, wallet, keys. I do that because if I don't do that, I have found myself in places where I didn't have one or more of those. So you're supposed to learn from your mistakes. Okay, so. There was a day when I went through the check and I couldn't find my wallet. I thought, okay, I know where I always put it. Right, I'm not OCD, but I know where I put things. So I went out there. There it was. And as I started to put it in my pocket, I noticed I had a $5 bill in there. I didn't know that. And I'm going, all right, you know, this is cool. So I put it in my pocket, got in the car, drove for a little while. And as I was getting off an exit of the interstate... I saw a man up at the corner. You know what I'm talking about. This guy was an amputee. He was probably in his late 60s. Looked like a very sad fellow. And no one was doing anything. I was about six cars back from him. And I did notice that he moved rapidly to one car and went away. And I thought, oh, they must have given him something. That's nice. And then I heard this thing in my mind say, you've got $5. I said, yeah, I have $5. You know, he said, well, he doesn't have $5. And, you know, being very spiritual, I said, well, tough for him. <laughs> then as I got closer, I started becoming convicted. He said, that's not your $5. It's my $5. And I want him to have my $5. All right, Lord. So I take it out, and he comes up, and I hand it to him. And he says, looking me right in the eyes, God bless you. You have a wonderful day. I mean, oh, that hurt so badly. Because I didn't give with a cheerful heart. I gave out of fear that I was going to be disobedient. And then I remembered this passage from Hebrews. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So I'm turning the corner and I'm thinking, well, what does an angel need with $5? <laughs> and then our verse for today came to me. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As we start our third week in Love Made Known, today's primary teaching is unconditional love. God showed us unconditional love 
when he sent Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And there are three things we really need to understand about unconditional love if we're going to learn how to do unconditional love. And that is the reality of it, it's real, the requirement of it, what's expected of us, and then our response to it. So let's get started with the first one, the reality of unconditional love. And I'm going to call back verse 16 and read that to you. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In this particular passage, there are three words I want us to look at. One of them is not even in the text, but it's in the original Greek. When John is writing this, he actually writes that this is how we know what the love is. He puts the definite article in there because there is no indefinite article in the Koine Greek language. So for emphasis, he's setting apart a particular kind of love against the love that the people in Ephesus were experiencing. If you remember from last week, we talked about Ephesus and how it was a city that was, uh, everybody wanted to live there. 300,000 people did. And how they worshipped in different temples. The temple of Diana was there and all the craftspeople were there making idols. And the love that they had was a different kind of love than the kind of love that John is talking about. It's no different today in our culture. The word love is being abused over and over and over. We put the emotion of love, the reality of love, on things, on events. Oh, I just loved that. And so we've watered the word down so it's lost its meaning. And I believe that was the case in Ephesus. So John wants to distinguish it. And he said, I'm talking about the agape, the love. It's a very special love. And so we know what kind of love this is. The agape is the love that came down and was made known. It's Jesus. Jesus is love personified. He's the reason we have it here. He is love made known. The second word in this 16th verse is he says, and this we know. Now John is a big user of the word know, to know. 32 times in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he uses the word know. Why does he do that? Why is he so emphatic about saying it? Because he's convinced. Reminds me of Paul's statement where Paul says, uh, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I commit to him against that day. So he's used two words there, to know and to be persuaded this is a knowledge that goes beyond human capability. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to you and to me. We know who he is. We know he is the agape. We know he is the love that we needed. So John is not saying, I think he might. Or I have a few questions, but I believe. No, he says, without a shadow of a doubt... I know who Jesus Christ is, and I know that he came to this earth with the purpose of paying for my sins. I know it. 
So he says he knows, he's persuaded about the agape. But then he puts the obligation on us. Because the third word in that same passage is, therefore we ought. It's an obligation. Now you've heard it all your life. You ought to brush your teeth. You know, and if you're a kid, it's like, oh, that's just, that's time consuming. I don't want to have to do that. What's the consequence to not doing it? You know, ask some of us who are older. But oughtness comes from the world of philosophy, but it is a theological thought, and that is this. That ought means this is the perfect way to do it. This is the ethic. Ethic is a perfect principle. So God establishes the ethics of our lives. And when he establishes it, he says, that's the oughtness in life. This is how it ought to be. But then there's something we call, sounds funny, isness. And the isness is what we must do. That's our morality. So when we talk about people's morals, all morality, all actions in life are based upon some ethic. Now it may be a weak, watered down, evil ethic. And therefore the isness of it, the morality of it is wrong, it's bad. And our society is filled with that. What the Apostle John is writing here is that, look, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the agape came down and died for us. Therefore, that's the ethic. He established it. And that's also the demonstration of it by him dying for us. That's the isness. So the ethic and the morality of Christ is without question. It's perfected. Therefore, we ought to pursue that. We ought to imitate that. We ought to desire to be more like Christ. But to do that, we need to know why. Well, why is the ethic? And so we study the scriptures, the word of God, that tells us everything we need to know about faith and life, about salvation. Everything's there in the word. And it's up to us then to absorb that word. So John's setting up his Ephesian readers by saying, okay, this is the case. Christ came. He gave himself for you. Now, church, it's your responsibility to know your brothers and sisters well enough that if there is someone who has a need, that you would be willing to help meet that need. Whatever it is. That's the reality of unconditional love. Well, that brings us to the requirement. The requirement is in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? To me, it's, it's a logical argument. He starts off with the word if, and in Greek there are four different ways to use it. This is the conditional one that actually says, if God showed love, and he did toward us, and you accepted that love, that's premise A. Premise B, and you see a brother or sister in need, premise C, and you don't do anything about it, conclusion, can the love of God really be in you? 
Think about that for a minute. He's not saying you may not be saved. Because if you've accepted Christ in your life and you're being conformed to his image and you're repenting of your sins and you're studying his word and you're doing all the things necessary to mature as a follower of Christ, you're saved. But it's still possible for you and me to see that guy on the corner and not want to give up the $5. That means that there's something missing. There's a a disconnect. Mine was short because he brought the scripture right to my mind. I ought to know that that person has a need. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and find all of those people on the corners and give them money. Because Paul is really writing to the church. What he's saying is there may be someone seated next to you today that has a need. And as a a pastor who mentored me used to say, we are blessed. There's good news and bad news. The good news is we have everything here we need. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. But he wasn't talking about giving it to the church. He was talking about being aware of the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, part of that falls back on the brothers and sisters. If you have a need, we need to know. You'd be surprised at the number of times that we find out information after the fact, and then we feel so badly because we weren't given an opportunity to help, to do something. If you're sick, let us know. If you have a need, let us know. You need to learn how to receive. So John is impacting this whole statement with this logical argument. It can be really simple, too. I remember back in seminary, one of the first times I learned this lesson. I was privileged to be able to preach almost every weekend somewhere in Mississippi. Um, Sometimes it was Alabama, sometimes Louisiana. Long drives to places where they had no pastors in the pulpit. And Linda and I drove 100 miles one Sunday, and we preached, and they gave me an honorarium of $100. Well, I looked it up this week, and today that'd be worth $563. So that's a big gift. And it was cash, and I put it in my pocket. Praise God, thank you. I already knew where we needed to put it, everything we needed to do. We drove back to Jackson, Mississippi, and we had been invited to a missionary dinner that evening. And so we went. We were seated at a table with eight people, and two of those were young missionaries about to go to the field. And they were telling us their story about what they were doing. It wasn't a fundraising dinner. It was just to celebrate missions. And one of the men at the table asked the young man, well, what do you need to be able to get to the field? He said, oh, we are so close. We only need $100. (laughs) I glanced over and my wife was burning a hole through me. (laughs) And I reached in my pocket and I said, here. And he said, you don't have to do that. I said, oh, yes, I do. (laughs) I said, listen, it's not mine. I was simply a courier from southern Mississippi, where some man down there knew that you needed it and gave it to me to give to you. Let me tell you, he was just blown away, and I couldn't believe. Wow, what a neat thing to have happen. I really didn't even feel the exchange of money as though, oh, I'm losing something. I felt like, wow, this is amazing, God. Thank you for using me like that. 
And it doesn't always happen that easily, does it? And we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. But real love is shown. It's not just spoken. Now, I want you to watch this. This is so neat. You know the Bible is is written in verses and chapters, but that's not how the writers wrote it. It all ran together. It was sometime in history that some people sat down and actually divided it up to make it easier for us to read and to understand. One guy jokingly said, I think perhaps verses and chapters were done by a man riding on a horse because some of them just don't make any sense at all. Well, follow this. This is really neat to me. John 3.16, you know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is that? That is the demonstration of love made known. That's the demonstration. John 3.16. Well, what about 1 John 3.16? Listen to this. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's explanation. That's word and deed going together. I just find it very interesting that the way God had it work out, that you'll always remember those two. First John 3.16 goes with John 3.16. One is demonstration, one is explanation. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone, use those two verses, because it shows how love came down, and it's the love, a very special love, a love that only can come from God. And we know it's true. I hope you know it's true. I hope it's true in your life. I remember when it had not been true in my life, and I remember being introduced to that love, and I had never, nor will I ever, feel again the kind of joy and excitement and thrill of knowing that I was forgiven because love had been made known to me, the love of Christ. Think about that. If you haven't done that yet, you really need to do that. You see, Jesus didn't wait until we met some minimal requirement. Aren't you glad of that? See, Jesus didn't say, at the point that you cross the line and your balance of good and bad tips toward good, I'll come for you. Because let me tell you, none of us would ever reach that level. None of us has good works that outweigh bad works. Because it's not just works, it's thoughts, it's emotions, it's actions, it's everything. And yet, while we were still sinners, the Bible says, he came and died for us. That is unconditional love. We have to respond to it. How do we respond? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Your response is going to come in one of three ways. If you're a follower of Christ and you see a brother or a sister in need, You're going to do whatever is necessary to help meet that need. Maybe you'll gather other people with you because you can't do it by yourself. And you'll help meet that need. That's a good thing. But if you promise love and don't follow through, 
then you're a hypocrite. Jesus followed through. If you promise love that is impure or evil intended, well, you're a manipulator. And neither a manipulator or a hypocrite can share unconditional love. What you're doing is you're putting a condition with the love you want to give. I've done it. I know you have too. God says, stop doing that. Don't put conditions on sharing the love of Christ with other people, even through material things. Someone needs something, help provide it. John Newton, some of you might know his name, some don't, but he's the one who wrote Amazing Grace, lived back in the uh, 1700s, and he had been a slave trader, and God saved him. He was a, a terrible man, he'll tell you that. He actually did go blind, and that's why in that verse it says, once I was blind, but now I can see. Here's the comment he made when the question came up about doing for God. He said, the love of God, the love of God, as manifested in Jesus Christ, is what I would wish to be the abiding object of my contemplation. In other words, he's saying, I wish all I ever thought about was the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not merely to speculate upon it as a doctrine, but to feel it so that my own interest in it is to have my heart filled with its effects and transformed into a resemblance of Christ. What he's saying is, we need to learn how to get beyond just saying, praise God, I'm glad he loves me, and it's all about me. Everybody else take care of yourselves. He's saying, I, I want the love of God to be manifested so in me and in my heart and be the object of my, my love that I am going out and doing the things that God told me to do, that I'm willing to live for him because he died for me. That's the bottom line on our response to his love. Live for him because he died for you. How do I live for him? By dying daily to myself. So that I am looking beyond myself each day. How can I serve? How can I do something that's going to please God today that's going to help another person? That's what life is really all about. Conditional love closes the heart. Unconditional love lays the heart down. One of the great Christian historians by the name of Eusebius, and he's writing about an event that took place in the life of the Apostle John. He knew him. And he records this amazing story of how John actually lived out what he says to us in 1 John chapter 3. He said there was a time when John went to another city and he visited a bishop there. And the bishop introduced him to a young man. And this young man was just on fire for God. He just said, I want to learn everything I can. And John said to the bishop, I want you to take him under your wing. And I want you to care for him. 
so that when I come again, I will see a mature man of God ready to serve. Will you do that? And the bishop said, yes, I will. John, you know, I, I honor you. You're, you're one of the apostles. I mean, you walked with Jesus. Yes, I'll do this. So John went back probably to Ephesus. A few years later, he comes back to the bishop. He says, where's my young man? He said, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you. He said, he, he left the faith. He became uh, a gang leader, and he's just doing terrible things out there in the wilderness. And John just stood there, and he said, okay. So John took himself out to the wilderness, and the bishop had said, if you go out there looking for him, they're going to kidnap you. And they did. And he said, take me to your leader. <laughs> and they took him. And he saw this young man, and the young man knew who he was. And John said, you didn't capture me. You didn't kidnap me. I gave myself to you. And to get you back in to the fold, into the kingdom of God, I am willing to do for you what Christ has done for me. I will lay down my life if you'll come back to Jesus. This young man was so overwhelmed and overwrought with guilt and with the love of John that he repented. You see, what John did was, John didn't just speak words and say, do this, do that. He acted on those words which he had spoken. He acted on the love which he had received. The love of God for you and for me requires action. John was convinced of the object of his faith. I'm convinced that Christ is Savior. He's the object of my faith. I don't have faith, true, biblical, living faith in anything else. Nothing in this world, nothing under the world, nothing above the world. My faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Add nothing to it, subtract nothing from it. And because I know him, then I have this responsibility to live for him. And that means listening to him through his word, through the Holy Spirit who lives within me, through the counsel of brothers and sisters. I'd love to live like John, basically because he lived almost 100. <laughs> but he lived a godly life the whole time. We were the object of Christ's love. You were the object of Christ's love. 2,000 years ago, when he put himself on that cross, your name was in his heart. My name was in his heart. He sacrificed for us then. He'll never do it again. It's been done one time, and it's sufficient for all of us because that's what unconditional love is. Now, I told you that I would mention why we don't show unconditional love as often as we don't show it. I call them shut-off valves. I can remember times when I was approached. My four favorites were this. Well, if they hadn't been so foolish, they wouldn't be in this situation. Ever used that one before? Or hear that one? Or... I'm always helping people. Let somebody else do it this time. 
If I give them what they really need, then I won't have enough for myself. And the last one, if I help them once, I know they'll come back and ask for more. That is shutting off unconditional love. That's putting a condition with my way to help them. They are statements of unconditional love. If Christ had had any one of those statements when I came to him and said, would you save me? He said, well, I've helped you before. I don't know if I can help you again. I'd still be in my sin. So would you. But there are no conditions. He simply made a sacrifice. And it worked. So what are you going to do? What is your response to the requirement of the reality of the love of God in Christ Jesus? When former President Jimmy Carter was asked why he was doing Habitat for Humanity and why he was so deep in his faith, this was his response. He said, My faith demands that I do whatever I can, wherever I am, whenever I can, for as long as I can, with whatever I have, to try to make a difference. Let me read that again. This is really us. This is what God's calling us to do. Our faith demands that we do whatever we can, whenever we can, wherever we can, for as long as we can, with whatever we have. I think we can do that. I think you have shown that you do that because of the generosity over the last two years. I know God is smiling because of what God is allowing us to accomplish. But now take it on a more personal level and look for those brothers and those sisters. For this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. He made love known. We celebrate that today with communion. Communion is the remembrance of the love of Jesus Christ. When he stood before his disciples in that upper room, he was saying all of the ceremonial things that took place, in the Old Testament as we call it, all of those things that took place up to now, I'm changing. But this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this wine, you will remember me until I come. Before we partake, I want you to examine your hearts. Know for sure that Jesus is your Savior. If he's not, ask him to be. And then we will participate together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for love made known. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Help us remember what you did for us today. We pray in your precious name. Amen. This is the body of Christ which is given for us. Let us take and eat together. The blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sins. Let us drink.
Lord, we, we kneel our hearts before you today. Thank you for your amazing love. And as we celebrate that love this Christmas, help us, Lord, to look at those who are less fortunate, those who have been having rough times, and help us to find them and to reach out to them proactively that we might meet their needs, that no one in the body of Christ will be without. So help us, Jesus, beginning this week, to respond to your love. We pray in your name. Amen. When you came in, there should have been a card on your seat. And this is actually a postcard. This is cool. It's the first time we've done this. If there's somebody you would like to invite on Christmas Eve and you happen to know their address, go ahead and fill it out. Leave it uh, out in the lobby area. There are a couple of different places to put it. We will mail it for you. If you don't remember their address, but you know the person and you want to bring it back, we'll still mail it or you can mail it yourself. But this is love in action. This is doing something. So take these with you. If you need more than one, make sure you pick them up. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. See you next Sunday.